Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the book of Titus. We'll be this morning in Titus chapter 2 as we continue our short little series in this, I think, powerful little book, Titus 2. You'll find that on page 998 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. And as you're finding your way there to Titus, I do want to uh, remind the members of Hamilton Baptist Church that uh, this Wednesday night is our annual members meeting. And so the elders are, are calling the church once together to gather together Wednesday at 7 o'clock as we consider that some matters for the church and kind of the direction as we move forward. And you'll find more information about that members meeting in your bulletin, I trust. And so we hope that you'll be able to come and to consider all that we are considering and the directions in which we are moving. So we trust we'll be blessed by that time together this Wednesday night. So Titus chapter 2 uh, We're going to begin this morning in verse 11, Titus 2, verse 11, hear now the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now. And we trust uh, that it is from you. I believe it's how you communicate to us. And so our expectation this morning is to have nothing less than the one true God speak to us through his scripture and by his spirit. And so we pray that you would come, guide and lead, open our hearts and our minds, our wills, to receive what you would have us to hear. And that we would conform our lives more and more to the image of Jesus. Help us to be changed because of our time together listening to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A man named Carl McNunn was a young man who loved the wilderness. In fact, he loved it so much that in the late 70s, he left home in Texas and moved to Alaska, where he took a trucking job for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. A single man, he made quite a bit of money, used, saved most of it for what he considered to be a trip of a lifetime, a five-month photography expedition alone in the wilds of Alaska. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? And so uh, prior to this trip, this 35-year-old man planned out every single detail. And after all, he's going to live five months without seeing another person all on his own, and so he He talked to people who had spent time and lived out in the bush and got all their information and wisdom. He secured all the supplies in which he needed. And after planning every single detail, in the spring of 1981, he hired a bush pilot to drop him off at a remote lake in the Yukon region of Alaska. And there he uh, brought with him a couple rifles, about 1,400 pounds of provision, and 500 rolls of film. That's the stuff you put in cameras. Remember those days? It was everything he dreamt of. There in utter isolation, there in the middle of this wilderness, 
McNunn set up camp, surrounded by nature, and spent his summer months hiking and hunting and taking pictures, all the while blissfully unaware that he forgot one important detail. He made no arrangements to be picked up. It dawned on him in August. By that time, he had spent most of his ammunition and eaten most of his supplies. He hoped his father would send for help when he didn't return, and so every day when he wasn't looking for food, his eyes scanned the skies. No one came. By the end of September, the lake was frozen, the snow was piled high, and his food was gone. His body was discovered in his tent in February, along with a 100-page diary in which he wrote, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. Man who planned for everything, every detail for his living, and nothing for his leaving. In some ways, I think he is quite common, quite typical. I think most of our neighbors, most of our Americans, maybe even most of us, even in this sanctuary, think largely of our living and nothing of our departure. I wonder about you, my Christian brothers and sisters. Do you consider your departure? How are you planning to get out of here? Paul thinks this is something that we should consider. Here in the book of Titus, we come to this wonderful little passage, a little paragraph there, as you saw, begins in verse 11. I don't know if you noted, but Paul here explains that we live in the middle of two appearings. In verse 11, he speaks about the appearing of the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared. So he talks about the appearing of past grace, and then we get to verse 13, and he says we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there is a future appearing of glory. And both these appearings, the appearing of past grace and the the appearing of future glory, are both devoted to change our lives in the present. And so what Scripture is constantly teaching us is that we look to the past and we look to the future in order to find strength to live in the present. For instance, we look backwards in gratitude and what Christ has done through his work of redemption on Calvary's cross and the empty grave on Easter morning. And we think about all the grace in which he has poured out upon us that our sins might be paid for and our eternal life secured. And we think about that in great gratitude and Of course, we not only cast our eyes upon the past, but we are told over and over again to to look to to the future and hope that Christ will return as we have sung again time and again this morning. He'll come in glory, and when he comes, he comes to complete our salvation. So if you remember last time we were in Titus, we looked backwards, didn't we? And we thought about the gratitude for past grace and its incentive for godliness. And today, our focus will be pretty much entirely on a hope for future glory and its impact upon us as well. We might consider the the past grace and future glory to be the pull and the push of the Christian life. We're pushed by gratitude for past grace. We're pulled by hope in future glory in order to live the life in which we're called to live in the present. We need both. It was Martin Luther who said famously, I live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming again tomorrow. I think we would do well to do the same. So the question I think before us as we think about Christ's return is, does that have any bearing on your life? Do you at all wait eagerly for the return of Jesus? 
I mistakenly memorized 2 Timothy 4.8 this week, in which Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. I wonder, do, you, do the idea of Christ appearing, do you love that? Do you long for that? Or are, as Paul puts it here in verse 13, are you waiting for your blessed hope? And when I say that, and when Paul says that, I don't think he's talking about do you think about it every second of the day. I mean, you, you, even when you're in love with your sweetheart, you don't think about him or her every moment of the day. But the idea is, does your mind return to it frequently? The, the truth of Christ's return. Do you, do you want it? Is there an eagerness for Jesus to come? Do you, do you even pray for his return? Pray for his coming? And my guess is that probably we don't. At least not as much as we ought. We don't look forward. As God would tell us, we, we don't live in hope. At least many of us. We look back as Christians. We're really good at looking back, aren't we? We think about what he has done, and, and we should, shouldn't we? And, and I don't know if you know, but I think it's like six weeks away. We're gonna de- we have this little holiday called Christmas coming up, and we're, we're going to think about the birth of Christ. He has come for us. We'll look back and see who he's born. And just a handful of months after that, we're, we have another one coming up. It's called Easter, and we think about his death on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. And we, we spend all our time looking back and thinking about the work of Jesus in his first coming, and it's good and proper that we do. But do we, do we look to the future and have a hope of his return. And I wonder if we don't as much as we ought is because we don't see a need for it. After all, we're pretty comfortable, aren't we? And I wonder if sometimes our affluence and our comfort, they don't serve us so well. It was Cornelius Plantica in his wonderful book uh, wrote that the second coming is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you are a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the southern United States in the early 19th century, or if you are an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you are a woman in a culture when when your husband is mad, he can lock you in a closet, if you are a Christian in sub-Sahara Africa today where AIDS is devastating whole populations, you don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus. Right? When things are hard, we long for it. But when things are easy and good, as they are most often for us, at least relative to the rest of the world, we, we, we don't have the eagerness that God wants for us. And in fact, the reason we don't, the impact, I should say, that we don't have this eagerness is that, is that we miss the strength in which God would give us to live a godly life. And let, let me put that differently. That, that you and I struggle with sin more than we ought to. And we would struggle with sin less if we had a greater hope in the future return of Jesus. And that, 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 that we, we would, think about this, if, you, if you, we were more eager and more focused on the return of Christ, you would find that you have greater endurance and difficulty. You would, you, would, you would find that you could have joy when your plans are changed. You would find that you have more boldness in the face of opposition, and on we could go. And so my prayer for us this morning, and I hope uh, your prayer as well, is that, that we would be reminded in these simple verses before us that this is not our home, that we are headed, listen, as good as things are, you are headed for an infinitely better existence that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever, and that ought to change the way in which you live. And so a simple outline for us this morning, verse 13, 
Paul deals with the coming glory, and then the impact in verse 14, the present change. And we will, as we just do over and over again, first consider the truth, and then second, see how it leads and impacts us, leads to godliness. As you know, that's the theme of Titus, don't you? Truth leading to godliness. We see it again and again, and here Paul once again returns to it. So first of all, consider, number, number one, the coming glory of the Lord. You see that there in verse 13, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is, as Paul tells us, coming. So let me just kind of very fundamentally put this all in our hearts and our minds today. Christians, Jesus is returning. You tell that to your non-Christian neighbor or co-worker, and they will consider that to be some sort of fairy tale that naive people believe. It's very... uh, out of fashion today to believe in a return of Jesus. In fact, it was Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer from Cornell, who said the second coming of Christ is equivalent to the cow jumping over the moon. It's silly, it's mythology, and intelligent people don't believe it. Well, I do want to let's let, just let you know that though the world dismisses it, the Bible teaches it. Again and again and again. For instance, in Acts 1, when the apostles saw Jesus ascend to heaven, the angels come and tell them as they stare up into the sky, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Philippians chapter 3, Paul explains our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior. In Colossians 3, we read, when Christ who is your life appears, or 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, or 2 Thessalonians Two, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Timothy 6, keep the commandment unstained until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you by his return. Hebrews 9, Christ will appear a second time. We read in James 5 that we should establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or 1 Peter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter also writes in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, not to be outdone. John explains in 1 John 3, when he appears, we shall be like him. And we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He is coming. He is returning, the Lord shall come again, and one out of 25 verses in the New Testament is in some way concerned with explaining that Jesus is on his way back. In fact, he himself said in Revelation 22 and verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. And it will be glorious. And you see what he says there in verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. What, what is it? The appearing of the glory. It will be a glorious day. And, and, and all, the, all the baubles and all the trinkets and all the trifling things that occupy my heart and occupy your heart on that day will not seem very significant to us when his glory is revealed. And all the, the idols in our hearts on that day will be dethroned as the false gods that they are on this glorious day. And all the pleasures of sin in which we are constantly uh, uh, tempted to and bombarded by will be unmasked as the filthy counterfeits they are on this glorious day. 
It is the coming of glory, coming of the glory, and not just some generic glory like a, like a lightning bolt in the sky and we all go, wow, isn't that great, or a shooting star that lights up the night sky. The glory will be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that not what Paul says? That we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of what? Of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to see Jesus. Is that not what everyone has said from the very days in which he walked upon this earth? Is it, is it not what Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see? Is it not that for that reason that Zacchaeus climbed that tree for the Lord what he wanted to see? Is it, was it not the Greeks that came to the apostle and said, sir, we would see Jesus? Was it not Paul who wrote, now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but then face to face, and as John gives us this hope, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, what, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The glory's in the person of Christ. We will see Jesus, and I think John Piper is right when he says, I don't want a letter from Jesus I don't want a messenger from Jesus. I don't want a phone call from Jesus. I want to see the lips of Jesus move on that great day when the grace of his heart overflows with these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to see him say that to you? It's coming. That day is coming. He is coming. It will be a great and glorious day for those who are in Christ, you see, for Paul tells us he is coming as a, what, what? Our great God and Savior. There in verse 13, you see it, I trust. This, I think, is one of the clearest expressions of the deity of Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and maybe you want to know what Christians believe. Well, one of the most found, uh, fundamental things that Christians believe is we believe that Jesus is God. No mere man. Not simply a prophet, but he himself is God. We think, for instance, Titus 2.13 clearly explains this. This is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not read that as the appearing of our great God and, the, our, great, and our Savior, right? It's not, not what the language allows us to do. There's just one article here. There's not, there's not appearing of God and the Savior, God and Savior both modified Jesus. The article is just repeated once. So literally, it's the great God and Savior of us. Jesus is God, and Jesus is Savior. So why, why is the appearing of God a blessed hope? Well, the appearing of God is only a blessed hope because he not only comes as God, but he comes as our Savior, right? Because quite often, if he's just coming as God, I mean, you read the Old Testament, and the appearing of God doesn't always bring comfort and joy. He usually brings terror and flight, and people say, we don't want to see this anymore. You, Moses, you go talk to him so we don't have to deal with him, right? When God just comes, it's terrifying and it's frightening. And so for them, it was not a happy day, but, but it will be a happy day for us because he's coming to, to save us. He's coming as our Savior. So that's my, that's my exit strategy, by the way. Right? What, what's my plan to get out of here? Well, my Savior's coming for me. Is he coming for you? 
Is Jesus coming for you as, as a savior? Do you have an exit strategy? Because some of us plan every detail of our life and we have all that we need, right? We have all the provisions. We got the car and the house and we got the food, right? More food than most of the world's ever seen. And we have, we have our family, right? We have, we, have, we have money in the bank and then we got money for retirement and then we, then we have our health and all that. And then we got insurance to cover it all in case something might threaten it, right? We plan every detail of our life. But do we have a way out? So life will end. These things will run out. And the reality is Jesus is not coming to save everyone. And the Bible says, in fact, he's, for some he's coming as judge. For those, it will not be a blessed day. In fact, he himself said, I think in Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. For some, a day of mourning. For some, a day of great blessedness. It reminds me of the psalmist who said in chapter 130, asking this question, O oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Francis Schaeffer, some 50 years ago, taking that passage, that question, O oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? And he imagined a scenario. He said, imagine if, if God had placed an invisible tape recorder around your neck. Now, a tape recorder is one of those things that you push the button and it records your voice. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, for some of you, a smartphone, okay, they're just hanging there. And it records you, but it only records you when you give advice, when you give counsel. So the only time it, it, it starts to record is when you say things like, hey, you ought to do, or you should do, or uh, perhaps you might do this. And then it records you. In other words, it's only recording your standards for other people. And, and at the judgment seat, Schaefer imagined, you stand before the judge, and the Lord says, listen, you know, I decided for you, I'm not going to judge you by my standard. I'm not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to judge you by the Golden Rule. I'm not going to judge you by the example of Jesus. I'm just going to judge you by yours. He reaches down and takes that little tape recorder off your neck, and he begins to play everything you said. You ought to do this. You should do this. You, you, you need to do this. And if that's all he did, every person in this room realizes we would fail. Right? We would fail. We, we wouldn't pass that test. We, we don't keep our standard. How much more do we fail in God's standard? And on that day, for those who are outside of Christ, all the excuses and all the self-denials and all the justifications for our own self-centeredness is just going to utterly fail. We'll have no defense when we stand before the holy creator of all things. And there's so many people in utter folly and arrogance say, oh, I'm just going to stand on my own that day. I'm going to present my own record of goodness that day. And please understand, Scripture is... is is, could not be more clear that if that's your plan, you will fail. You don't keep your own rules. What hope do we have? Therefore, on the day we come before God, how can it be a blessed hope? We'll read the next verse. Verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us to re- redeem us. Right? He's come to redeem us, giving himself up. So that, that reference, gave himself, is a reference to the cross, isn't it? That Jesus has come and he has, he has died upon the cross 2,000 years ago, not because he was paying for his own sin, but he's paying for my sin. He's paying for the sin of all who would ever trust in him. And there he was taking uh, our judgment on himself. So Christian, the reason why the return of God is not a day of terror, the reason why for you it is a day of blessing is because your judgment day is past. It's already happened. 
You've had a judgment day. It happened 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary outside of Jerusalem when the judge himself was judged for you. Took all your sin upon himself that you might be reckoned with all of his righteousness. Judgment is over, which is why Paul can say so boldly there in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the question for everyone. Everyone in this world, will he come as judge or savior? How will he find you? My hope is that if today you walked into this room and you were outside of Christ, that even now you would confess your faith in him and turn from your own efforts and say, I yield my life and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of God who died for my sins and was rose from the dead, and I bow myself before him as my savior, as my king, as my Lord, that you too might find him on that day, not as judge, but as savior. For us Christians... You see, Paul tells us we should be waiting for this day. There in verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope. I like how the NIV puts it. Maybe you have that. While we wait, it translates. I think that would be kind of a neat thing to put on your mirror, right? In the morning, you go and brush your teeth, and you're just reminded of these words. While we wait. That everything you're going to do today, you do while you're waiting. Right? It, it, we're, we're just busying ourselves before the show is what's going on. We're waiting for his return, and, and he is coming, and we're to wait for it. Now, we don't, we're, we're Americans. We don't like to wait. Right? We don't like to wait for anything. Perhaps you've heard the prayer, God, give me patience and give it to me now. Right? Um, we, we, we're not very interested in waiting, yet it seems to be an essential part of the Christian life. Waiting will change everything. Take, for example, Moses who the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, why? Why would he choose ill-treatment over pleasure? Well, he tells us because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see, waiting for the return of Christ will create a people of godliness, a people of sacrifice, a people of purity, a people of good works. And I think some, somehow we, we got the opposite impression that, that we think if you hope in the return of Christ, then you don't really care about this world. Right? I mean, what, what, the, the, you know, the guy on the street there um, who's handing out the, the pamphlets, the end is near, right, wearing the sign, right, uh, he's coming, the, the end is near. Why, why do those guys always smell bad, right? I mean, they're never in a suit, they're always dirty, right, and, uh, and, and, and they're like that, right, because the, end, the, the idea is the end is near, then you clearly don't care about how you smell, right? You don't care about how you look, you don't care about any of that, after all, the end is near, I mean, that's the thought process we have, but the Bible actually radically teaches us the opposite. That, that the, the Bible actually explains that if you are hoping in the return of Christ, it will radically change the way in which you live. The second coming is mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. 300 times. Why? Why is it so, so frequently mentioned? It's not, by the way, to get us to speculate about all the events that will accompany it. Almost every time, it's to get us to be prepared for when it comes. It's always asking this question. Are you ready when he returns? Will you be found working when he returns? Will you be found godly when he returns? Will you be found doing what he calls you to do? The second coming, the implication is always about your life here upon this world. That, that, that Christ is coming soon. Therefore, what? Get to work. Not therefore go sell everything and move to the top of a mountain. No. Therefore, we have work to do. 
In fact, it was Cornelius Plantiga, who I quoted for a moment ago, says that the second coming is good news for those whose lives are filled with bad news, right? If you're a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt and so forth, you don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus. He continues writing, the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king. And the coming of the king means justice will at last fill the earth. Therefore, here's his conclusion, the passionate Christians want the return of the Lord. And let me add, so do compassionate ones. If you long for Christ appearing, then you long for the conditions that will accompany his appearing. Now, I think that's profound. Let me just read that one more time. If you long for Christ appearing, then you will long for the conditions that accompany Christ appearing. Well, what, what, what is it going to be like when Jesus returns? What, what, what conditions does he bring? I mean, we could probably spend quite a long time talking about that, but let me just mention two. One, one condition when he comes is that everyone will know him. Right? All the deceit and all the lies will be cast away and every, every eye will see and every knee will bow. Everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some to their shame and embarrassment, some in great joy, but everyone will know. And, and number two, it's going to be the end of suffering. Right? There'll, there'll be no disease, there'll be no hunger, there'll be no environmental degradation, there'll, there'll be no injustice, there'll be, be no abuse, right? No more crying there, we're going to see the king. No more dying there, we're going to see the king, right? That's what it's going to be like. So the degree into which you wait for his appearing will be to the degree in which you tell other people about him. And the degree in which you want to live like Jesus and create a world like the one he is returning. Or to use the language that Paul uses in this letter to Titus, we will shun lawlessness and we'll seek purity and we'll be eager for good works. In fact, look what he says about our present change. So the coming glory is recorded there in verse 13. And that coming glory will have radical impact upon us if we're waiting for it. For after all, he is coming for those he purified those he purified. Look what he says there. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. So Jesus died, by the way, so that you, don't re- you and I don't remain in the pigsty of our sin. He died to remove us. And when he comes for us, we don't want to be found back into the, in the filth of, of the lifestyle in which he died to redeem us out of. In fact, the, the word redeem is, is a word that used... Uh, to deal with slavery at this issue, to buy slaveries in their freedom. And, of course, you already know Paul's addressed the slaves just a couple of verses earlier in verse 9 of chapter 2. I trust it would have caught their ear when he mentions the word redemption, right? Remember what God said to the Jews enslaved in Egypt, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. He has done that for them, and it's just a picture of the salvation which he brought for us in Christ. You have been redeemed. You once were enslaved are now set free. You're free from sin. You're free, as he says, from all lawlessness. And so, Lord, when you return, is this not our prayer? I don't want to be found back in the old fields of my slavery, just doing the labor in which you have died to, to, to free me from. He's, come to, he's coming for those who he's purified. In fact, he goes on there in verse 14 and says, not only redeemed us from all lawlessness, but he has purified us. So he redeemed us from our past enslavement, and he's purifying us in the present. In other words, we're freed from slavery. Now that we're free from the slavery of sin, he is in the process of washing off the filth of our life. He is transforming us, and he is coming, as Paul uses the language elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, coming for a bride that is beautiful and lovely and pure. 
Right? And so is it not our heart, if we long for his return, that we would say, Lord, when you return, I want to be found pure. I want to be found beautiful for you. I want to be found righteous for you. In fact, he's not only coming for those whom he purified, but he's coming for those he possesses. You read on in verse 14, and you read that language, don't you? He says that he has come to, he has uh, gave himself to purify for himself a people of his own possession. His own possession. So he redeems us. He purifies us for himself. We belong to him. So Christian, you no longer belong to yourself. You understand that, I trust. You are not yours. And what that means is you don't simply get to ask in life, I'm gonna, you know, what do I want to do? And then you go do it. You don't, right, as we, it's not, not you don't go where you want to go and do what you want to do and to whom whatever you want to do it with. You, you're not your own, right? In fact, to take it a step further, you don't even get to believe what you want to believe. You don't get to determine that, right? We, we have no right to believe Anything about uh, marriage or, or parenting or our, our, uh, how we treat one another other than what the Bible teaches us, right? We have no right to do a- anything in opposition to what the Bible says. We be- we're not our own. We belong to Jesus. Therefore, we are to be different. The Christian behaves differently from the non-Christian. I know that's pretty elementary, but let me just say it anyways. We are to behave differently than the non-believers. And if you don't behave not differently, then you're not a Christian. It's a sign of our Christianity. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it's a sign that you have, you have been owned by him. We are different. And people in our lives occasionally ought to say, wait a second, why do you do what you do? And, and then we say, well, because I'm, I'm not my own. I don't belong to me. And they say, well, but no, no, everyone else does this, and everybody else watches this, and everybody else does this with their time, and everybody else does that thing and this thing and, and, and that thing over there. And you say, I'm sorry, but Jesus is my Lord. I am possessed by him. And by the way, it, I, I, it seems like there's so many Christians today who just want to be just like everybody else. And there's all denominations that are just tripping over themselves to see which ones could be closer to the culture in which we live. And I don't know. I have the crazy idea that maybe people are looking for people who are different, not just like them. I mean, why would they want to be like us anyways if we're just like them? I think they want to find people who say, listen, my life was a total mess. And then I found Jesus. And now I'm not my own. I belong to him and everything's changed and I'm different. I'm possessed by him. We are a people of his own possession. I thought by, I think, by the way, that ought to give you incredible security. When he died for you, when he shed his blood to redeem you, he did it because he wants you. You understand that? Jesus wants you. I mean, is that not what he says? who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession. He wants a people. He's coming for a people. Let that sink in. Jesus wants me. He has bought me because he wants me. And and he's coming for those who want to be owned by him. How do you you respond to that? Jesus wants me? God wants me? Do you think, well, listen, that's swell. That's a a nice idea. I'll put that on a Hallmark card or something. No, I don't. I think think what that should do in our life is that we, we give us an incredible longing to become 
the, the type of person for which he has died, for which he is coming for. And that is, if you will, to see lastly, to be zealous for good works. And you see Paul here, once again brings this up there in verse 14, people of his own possession there at the very end who are zealous for good works. I don't know, uh, we've been in Titus for a handful of weeks now, haven't we? Have you heard about good works? We saw in chapter 1, verse 16, the false teachers are unfit for any good work. We saw it in chapter 2 and verse 7 when Titus is to be a model of good works to the rest of the church. We see it now here in verse 14 that all Christians are to be zealous for good works. By the way, uh, we'll, we'll get into chapter 3 and what will we find? Well, you get in verse 1 and we're told to be ready for every good work. You'll see in verse 8 that we're told to be careful to do good works and once again for the sixth time in verse 14 to devote ourselves to good works. I think it's clear, isn't it? I mean, it could be more clear. We are to be people who are about good works or people who do good works and not just do them, by the way. You see there in verse 14, even more challenging, we are to be zealous for them because the reality is you can do good without zeal. You can do good without eagerness. Just watch my kids wash the dishes, okay? Or clean their bedroom. They may be doing good, but there's not a lot of, they're not fighting over to see who gets to do it. And, and, and by the way, uh, they're no different than you and they're no different than I, are they? In fact, many of us have come to church service this morning, perhaps with very little eagerness in our hearts, very little zeal. I'll tell you by the authority of God's word that Christ is coming for zealots. I know that word's not popular today, but that seems what it says. People are zealots for good. You know what it's like to be a zealot, I think. Zealot for your football team, perhaps. Um, Zealot for your political party. Zealot for your own comfort and leisure. Right? We we know it. I know it. We're to be. We're things we think about. We're committed to. We arrange our life around it. I'm going to arrange my life around these things. I'm going to make sure I'm where I could near TV so I can watch this thing or whatever it is. What about good works? Are you zealous for good works? And I think if we're honest, most of us will say, well, I, I mean, I like good works and I, I occasionally dabble in good works and, and I'll do good works as long as it's not too inconvenient for me, as long as it's not something that I don't want to do. But it's not what he's saying there. He's saying, I want, I want people, I'm coming for people who are zealous for good works. I wonder what would your life look how would it look different on, on Monday morning if you woke up and said, God, okay, you're coming. Uh, this, I'm going to live this day while I wait. And while, I, while I'm waiting, this is what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be zealous for good works. And so give me a zeal today for goodness, for righteousness. And you say, okay, well, what, what, what are the good works? Well, I would just ask you to return to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Remember the three weeks we spent in, in those verses, and older men do this, and older women, you know, train younger women, and younger, uh, younger women be, be kind and pure, and younger men be self-controlled, and employees be submissive to your boss and everything, be well-pleasing and all the rest. I mean, we looked at command after command after command. My question for you is, after three weeks there in Titus 2, did anything change in your life? I mean, honestly, is there any difference? I mean, can you look back and say, okay, yeah, I heard, I heard from God those three weeks, and this is how my life is different. I'm, I'm growing in my zeal. I read of a pastor who was talking to a man over a bowl of soup that he had hardly touched. He said to his pastor, I'm so convicted with my lack of passion for God. 
I was not living for him at the job and before my family, but God has arrested my heart. Just a few weeks ago, I went home and confessed my unfaithfulness to the Lord and to my wife. We began to go through the house and throw things away, such as music, movies, anything that didn't contribute to righteousness. We were up till 3 a.m. throwing stuff away. Then with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm tired of playing games. I want to be real for God. I wonder if there's some of us that are playing games. I'm not in any way, by the way, suggesting you go through the house and throw things away. Maybe you should, I don't know. But are you playing at Christianity? He's coming. He's coming for people with zeal. He died to give you zeal. He's returning for zealots. Do you love the Lord and long to honor him so that you gladly do what he says? Are you zealous? And now, even asking that question, it presents a problem, right? He says here, be zealous for, zealous for good works. How do you make yourself zealous if you're not already zealous? Right? I mean, is commanding someone to be zealous really the most effective way of creating zealots? Right? Because if you, I mean, listen, you don't need to command me to kiss my wife. Right? There's a zealous, zealousness there. You don't, no one has ever commanded me to drink coffee. Okay, here it is. Drink it. Right? No, no, one, no one commands me to, to, to watch Duke basketball. That's very easy I, I, um, to do. And there's zealousness there in my life. There, no one will command me this afternoon to take a nap. That was just going to happen because there's a commitment to it. I do it because I'm, ze- I'm zealous for it because I already love it. Now, if, if you're not zealous for good works, you're not because you don't love them as you should. So how can that be fixed with a command? I mean, where are we going to find zeal? Well, I think we have to look no place else but other than Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. We look back. We see grace, the gospel. Every day, I think, every day, I think before your feet hit the floor, you ought to open your eyes and say, thank you, Lord. I am yours. I am saved by grace through the death of Jesus Christ. That ought to be in your heart. You ought to praise God for that, and you ought to let your heart saturated, and you think about the grace in which you received, and it will begin to ignite a zeal. It will begin to ignite a worship in you, and you see this gracious God, and you will be grateful. The gospel will give you a zeal for good works. So you just don't think about good works. You think about the gospel. Uh, again and again, we, we, we say over and over again that we're not so s- simply just to look at what we're supposed to do. We look 90% of the time at what God has done for us, and that will give us the power to do what we're supposed to do. As, or John Bunyan once said some hundreds of years ago, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Right, the gospel will give, be powerful, and you look back and you see his grace, and then what do you do? You look forward and see the glorious God who's coming for us. He's bringing the completion of our salvation. He's coming as a savior, and you put your hope there. You begin to focus your heart, thinking I'm waiting for his return. This is what William Carey did some 250 years ago. That shoe repairman in London in the middle of the 18th century changed the world as a heart, had a heart for India, heart for the lost. And against tremendous odds, moved to India there to translate the Bible and preach the gospel. And my friends, he didn't go to India in the middle of the 18th century because of the retirement package. He didn't go there for the educational opportunities for his children. He, he went there because he had another hope. His heart was anchored in another place. 
And so he lived differently. He was zealous for good works because he had hope. Hope, I, I, I want you to understand, hope brings us so much power. Hope will give you endurance. Hope will give you perseverance. Hope will give you clarity of, of sight. Hope will push you through trouble. There was an experiment that happened a, a couple of decades ago at John Hopkins University. They were trying to determine how long rats could swim before they drowned. You know, uh, don't draw the uh, application too close to, to yourself. So just be careful here as I talk about rats for a moment. But if you put a rat in the water, the rat would swim for about 10 minutes before it gave up and drowned. But within that 10 minutes, if you would reached in and took the rat and lifted it for a second and put it back in the water, and you did that two or three times within the first 10 minutes, the rat would swim for 60 hours. And so, what, what's going on there? How do you go from 10 minutes to 60 hours? The rat was given hope. Hope allows them to swim 3,000 times longer than it did without it. We, we are to be waiting for the blessed hope. We are to put, put our hope in his return. And, 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 and as we do, as our faith in the work of Christ and our hope for the coming of Christ grows and abounds, we will begin to see that we find power to reflect the character of Christ in our lives. Long ago, as we close, well, I guess a couple decades ago, I was, when I was in high school, um, I think on a dare... I read uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Um, and uh, if you ever read um, uh, War and Peace, there's, obviously there's some Christian themes there. And uh, I don't remember much of it. This was a while ago. But I do remember one character. And if you've probably read the book, you'll remember her too. Her name is Natasha. And Natasha is presented as this lovely and charming girl. And everyone, really, everyone who encounters her falls in love with her. And even the reader is, is finding his heart going after her. I mean, she wins your heart. Uh, even, even a 17-year-old high school boy is rooting for her good. And eventually, Natasha is betrothed to the righteous prince, Andre. Andre was a good and upright man. Um, but because Natasha is young, the marriage is delayed for a year. Well, Natasha, as we read the story... She waits faithfully for that year. She waits faithfully for Prince Andre, keeping herself pure and devoted for that year until he's on his way and the wedding comes in the morning when Andre, the prince, comes to claim his bride. But on that last night, she is wooed by this worthless man named Anatoly, who happens to be already married. And as you read the story, you find something happening. You, you want to warn her. You spent so much time with her. You, you want to shout out for her. No, wait for Prince Andre, right? And Anatoly's a charmer, and he's very witty, and, but it's very clear he's going to ruin her life. And yet Natasha is completely swept away by him. So the evening before she is to be married to the prince, she agrees to elope with Anatoly. Now, I won't spoil the end for you. You could read it this afternoon if you want. It's a short book, right? <laughs> But it doesn't end out well. You see, we're all a little bit like Natasha, aren't we? That is, we're easily seduced away from what's best for us. There's charmers in this world. And they'll be seeking your heart this afternoon, won't they? They'll be after you Monday morning and Tuesday afternoon. My exhortation by the grace of God today is to not give yourself to these charmers in the world. 
the prince is coming. And he is worth the wait. Our Father, we are thankful for the return of our Lord Jesus. We believe, as he has taught us, that he is coming soon. Though soon evidently is different for you than it might be for us. We nevertheless believe it. We believe it because your word promises it again and again and again. We believe it because it's necessary if this world one day will be redeemed. Oh, Jesus, we long for you and yet do not long for you as much as we should. So will you do us the simple kindness today to create in each one of us who calls you our Lord, to give us a greater eagerness, greater focus, greater attention, greater love on your return. That we would, as Paul writes elsewhere, set our minds on things above, set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated. That we might live differently, we might find power in this world to live as the people you have died to create. We pray for our friends here this morning that have yet to yield their life to Christ. Will you help them to see that the charms of this world are nothing compared to the glory of the Lord himself? That they would despair of their own goodness and bow their knee to Jesus in faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.